Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Courtney, and I am a disabled asexual woman. Royce is here, too. We're married, and together we are the ace couple. Before we dive into uh, conversing on today's topic, I want to do just a a moment of light housekeeping. If you are listening to this episode right as it comes out, I want to remind each and every one of you that Ace Week is coming up. Ace Week this year in 2021 is going to be held October 24th through the 30th. So make sure to get ready to share all of your asexual pride And I especially want to call attention to the fact that we are founding the first inaugural Disabled Ace Day. Uh, We are hoping to make this an annual event, and it will be Wednesday during Ace Week, so uh, keep an eye out for October 27th. That is going to be a day for us Disabled Aces. Make sure to follow us over on Twitter. We are over there at The Ace Couple. And make sure also to follow Ace Week for more ways that you can get involved and participate. So without further ado, let's get into today's topic. And I don't know about Royce over here, but Courtney is feeling a little spicy, a little saucy, uh, ready to spill a little tea, as it were. I don't know if you've ever felt like that in your life, Royce, but I'm ready to go. And do forgive me if this episode devolves into a lot of Courtney talking and Royce listening silently, but today's topic is going to be about ableism and uh, disability discrimination in the asexual community as well as other LGBT spaces or places in general. The sad fact of the matter is, if you have not personally experienced ableism, if you are not very close to a loved one who has experienced ableism, the chances are you just don't really know what it's like and what some disabled folks go through. And so this this episode's going to actually be a two-parter. Tonight, we are going to be talking about my personal experiences, personal anecdotes. So bear in mind that all of these are things that are my experience and mine alone. And then next week's episode, we hope to talk about more of the broader systemic issues of ableism in the asexuality community, as well as aphobia in the disability community. So my full roster of diagnoses, diagnoses, are far too long to uh, explain here today. So I, I will give you all a, a, a sampler, a little amuse bouche, if you will. Uh, <laughs> Rice, don't look at me like that. <laughs> Sometimes when I say weird things, Rice looks at me funny. At any rate, I am a woman of many maladies. My largest, most recognizable syndrome is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and it is a connective tissue disorder. So connective tissues affect a lot of different things in your body. So symptoms can come and go. They can change in severity 
Um, it manifests in new and increasingly creative ways. Uh, so I have many comorbidities with a, a long list of fun, rare diseases. In practice, this means I have chronic pain, chronic fatigue. I am a mobility aid user. Most frequently, I will be seen walking with a cane or a walking stick. Uh, more recently, I have acquired some forearm crutches. And although I am not a regular wheelchair user, I have been known to use a wheelchair on occasion, uh, especially while traveling. And traveling is something that, pre-pandemic, is something that I did quite often for my work. I would travel to teach art shows, um, all manner of things. I are we, we can't possibly get into this conversation today if we're going to keep this under an hour. We'll talk about my professional life later. <laughs> but just know that I do often travel, and it's usually alone, right? So you've, you've come with me to a couple of different things, but very often I'm traveling solo. Yeah, I usually prefer to stay at home, but there have been a couple of instances where you were vending or teaching at an event where it was easier for me to come along. Yeah, absolutely. And your your preference for staying home um, extends to being at home. We, we live in the Kansas City metro area, and pre-pandemic, I would, I would often go out and socialize alone um, in the evenings while you stayed home, and that was uh, perfectly fine and something that worked for us. So a, a lot of the overt slap you in the face discriminations that I have gotten as a disabled woman out and about have very often been while I have been alone. Yeah, I heard most of them after the fact. The only one that I can think of being there in person was in Salem. Ah yes, good old Salem, Massachusetts, the the city of witches. I yes, I did have to go to Salem. I was Doing many things that weekend, and that's why you needed to come along with me, because I couldn't be in all places at once. But there was a convention in Salem where, I believe it was a two-day event. The first day I was giving a history lecture that people could buy tickets to and attend. And the second day, all day long, I was actually teaching a hands-on sort of historical art workshop. And... And I had to set up the recording equipment and sell things. Yes, they, they did offer me a, a booth to sell artwork, jewelry, merchandise, um, which I obviously couldn't do. I couldn't man that booth while I was teaching. So that is where my wonderfully supportive spouse comes in. This is really weird to tiptoe around what I actually do for a living. So I'm just going to say it, and if it sounds very weird to you and you want to know more, tweet at us or something, <laughs> comment, comment on YouTube. Uh, but I make artwork and jewelry out of human hair. It is an old art form, and I do a lot of historian work on the origins and the history of this art form. So it is a little bit unique. I could talk about it for hours, but we don't have time for that. This episode's about discrimination and ableism. But that, that does bring us to Salem, Massachusetts, where 
You you were with me the first time someone attempted to kick me out of <laughs> of a business just for existing as a disabled woman. So I had my walking cane, as I nearly always do. I definitely always do when I'm traveling. And we got in one day before the event. So naturally, as, as a historian, as someone who's visiting Salem, I wanted to check out the local museums and the historic sites. So we wanted to go to the Peabody Essex Museum, which was a fabulous museum once we got in. But walking in the door, walking with a cane, the security guard just like outright stopped us and basically said that I couldn't bring my walking stick into the museum. And I said, well, I need this to walk. And he said, well, it's not allowed, so you have to leave. Somebody didn't tell that security guard that disabled people are, in fact, allowed to go to history museums. Who knew? Do you happen to know if that museum is private or public? As in, does it receive government funding? The reason why I ask is that accessibility lawsuits seem to be more commonly aimed at publicly funded establishments. Private establishments get sued, too, for being inaccessible, but it's a whole other thing if the organization is receiving your tax dollars and is still discriminating against you. That's a good point, and... I would say that most museums, I, I've only been to this Peabody Essex Museum once, so I'm not nearly as familiar with it as I am other museums. But if I had to guess, most museums are uh, 501c3 nonprofits. So although they may not necessarily be you know, fully government funded, they, they often are able to take tax deductible donations. This is all conjecture. If I'm wrong, ignore me. <laughs> That's not really the point of any of this anyway. It was just something that I was curious about. Yeah, and do you have any just... I mean, I, I genuinely think that was the first, if not the only time that you have been right there by my side when I have... When someone has attempted to kick me out of the business for being disabled. So how is, how is that for you? Well, it was it was strange, and any situation like that where there's overt social conflict is stressful. But it was more that we were out of town in a, an unfamiliar area and were on a time crunch, and we both knew that what was going on was illegal, but the the thought was, what can we actually do about it during the short amount of time that we're here on a conference trying to make you know, make the best use of our free time before needing to go back to the convention. Yeah, and I mean, by this point, I, I may have been more taken off guard if that was the first time someone's ever tried to kick me out for having a cane. <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous when I say it, and I always worry that people who have never experienced this are just not going to believe me, but this kind of overt ableism actually does happen. And it wasn't even the cane with the sword in it either. <laughs> I do have a sword cane, yes, but as you can well imagine, uh, the TSA frowns upon bringing those on planes, so no, I do not travel with my sword cane. And yes, I always check the state laws. Um, for those of you who are international <laughs> listeners, um, 
I, I've gotten quite a response uh, when I talk about having a sword caned internationally, because apparently it's not, uh, that's not normal to be legal. But there are, are, in fact, several U.S. states that do allow you to have a fully concealed sword and out walking around with it. It's completely legal. Last time I checked, the only bladed things that were illegal in Kansas were ballistic knives and throwing stars. The more you know. And you can only keep brass knuckles if they are <clears throat> paperweights. Do you know how we know that one? Because Royce here gave me a fabulous paperweight for our one-year anniversary. But this episode isn't about weaponry, Royce. <laughs> it's about ableism. So that that was that was your first-hand experience being with me when that happened. But you know, it's it's Halloween time, it's October, it's spooky season. Um it's my favorite time of year, as I'm sure it is uh many of our listeners' favorite. So what I really want to do here is just take a moment to um rage about the Kansas City haunted houses. This is topical, I promise. It is that time of the year. So I love me a good scare. I love me a good haunted house. So imagine my delight after moving to Kansas City when I learned that some of the most famous haunted houses are right here in Kansas City, at least famous in the U.S. The two most notable ones are The Beast and The Edge of Hell. They are, I believe, owned by exactly the same people. There's also a third called Macabre Cinema. I don't think they get as much like nationwide notoriety as the other two. But the first Halloween season I spent down here when I went to these haunted houses, it, they were great. They were, they were very, very nice. I was impressed. I had a very good time. A few years later, however, I had a friend visiting from out of town who wanted to see the houses, of course, and I was glad to go again. Um, I went in a group of three. There were two friends with me. And we decided that in one night we were going to try to see all three of the haunted houses. So we went to Macabre Cinema first, had a good time. We went to the edge of hell, we had a good time, and we ended with The Beast, which is, you know, arguably the most famous of the three. And it was one of the most humiliating experiences of my life. Because we got almost completely all the way through the haunted house. We were very near the end, and one of the big defining characteristics of this particular haunted house is that you can jump out of a, what is it, a two, three, a two-story window in this big sort of old warehouse district onto a big airbed. Um, and if you don't want to jump out of a building, <laughs> you can go down a large uh, four-story slide instead to get to the bottom. And I was here with my two friends, at least one of whom had never been here, if, if not both of them, I can't quite remember. But we got near the end, and someone in just regular clothing, no haunt actor of any kind, just sort of walks out of a side door and looks directly at me and says, 
why do you have that cane? And I was just so shocked and so baffled that I just said, uh, because I'm disabled and I need it. And he said, all right, then you have to come with me. You're leaving. You, you don't get to finish the haunted house. And I went, excuse me, what? He deemed, based on my answer, that it was not safe for me to finish the haunted house. Even though I explained to him that I had been to this haunted house before, I had been to the other two haunted houses earlier that very night without incidents, and that the cane actually made it much safer for me to traverse the haunted house than if I didn't have it. Everyone who enters these houses also basically agree to a warning you could get injured or die and we're not responsible for any of it sort of thing. Yeah, they take your thumbprints and everything for the waiver. So I'm already, I've waived all of my, my, my liability, uh, or I've waived them from liability, rather. And so I, I was just astonished. And he said, well, you know, the, the slide's coming up. We can't let you go down the slide with the cane. We can't let you jump out of the window with the cane. So we're just going to take the back elevator and you're, you got to leave. Which, remember, you were just at Edge of Hell previous in that, previously in that night, and that haunted house also ends in a slide. A slightly larger slide, actually. I'd been on multiple slides that night already. Some short, some long. Like, it's no big deal. I, I even had the cane with me that has a wrist strap, so it would have been fastened to me. And so I was just baffled. I said, okay, well... You take my cane and meet me down at the bottom. I want to jump out of a window or I want to go down the slide and I want to finish the haunted house that I paid a lot of money for. They aren't that cheap. And he said, no, 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 no. You, you already told me that you're disabled. I already know that this isn't safe and I'm using my discretion and, and you got to go. We're leaving. Come on, let's go. And I said, well, what what exactly is the issue? And he said, well, we, we just can't have you with that cane in here. And I said, that's fine. I'm with two very good friends. Uh, one of these friends, uh, she's shorter than me, but she's very, very strong. Uh, she works out. She is a beast. Um, and then I had one very, very tall friend, huge guy. <laughs> like either one of them could have easily like carried me out if they needed to. And I trusted them to do so. So I was like, well, you know, I, I can I can take one of their arms and, and walk along. It'll be fine. Like, yeah, keep this cane for me at the beginning. He said, nope, uh-uh, won't allow it. If you're disabled, you gotta go. So I was like, oh, okay. We were very, very angry. But yeah, they, they broke, you know, they broke the illusion. They broke the haunt. Uh, they took me through a back corridor. And I mean, my, my other friends came with too. They were livid about this. And that was that. And they, they wouldn't issue any refund either because they um, they stated that it is within their right to kick anyone out for safety reasons. <laughs> and this does actually lead into a very, very good um, story that is specific to the queer community and the sort of ableism and a phobia that you might get from other you know, gay bars, drag bars, uh, primarily gay male spaces. But before we get into more bad, 
I want to give one one little nugget of good if anyone listening here happens to be local to Kansas City or visiting during the spooky season. Um, the year after this debacle with the beast and the edge of hell, um, I was treated exceptionally well by Worlds of Fun during their Halloween haunt. They were absolutely marvelous. They had uh, invited me to their sort of uh, preview practice night, um, their PR department did. I, I still don't know how or why that happened, <laughs> to be honest. They were like, hmm, who is, who is a prominent goth in Kansas City? <laughs> I think you were somehow identified as an influencer, but I don't know how. I don't know through what channel that was. Was that the year I was nominated for, like, Best Local Personality at the Pitch? <laughs> that, that might have be been it. I think that was it. Uh, for those of you not local, we have a... Um, it's called The Pitch. It's a local uh, paper, news, magazine-type situation. In 2018, I was voted Best Local Craft Artist, and I think the year after that, I didn't actually get any awards, but I was nominated for some weird ones that surprised me, like Best Local Instagram, which is laughable because I'm the world's worst photographer, um, and Best Local Personality. I don't know why that was, but that was probably why they invited us to this like exclusive preview <laughs> from the PR team. But they, they treated us very, very well. Uh, let me in with my cane. <laughs> Gasp. So if you're in the area and you're looking for good haunt, worlds of fun all the way. They aren't ableist assholes. So I am a person who really loves a good, immersive scare. I like horror as a genre in theory, but in practice it rarely works for me. There are very few horror movies that I love. There are very few horror books that actually give me a visceral feeling. So there's something about being in an immersive environment with actors that I wouldn't say it actually scares me the way it scares other people. I'm not especially jumpy. Royce and I have been known to uh, get home decor ideas from haunted houses. But I do really like being put in a a real tangible, scary place. So it was this exact same year that I had been invited to the uh, Halloween haunt at Worlds of Fun. And before they actually had me go through the haunted houses with, um, with this PR executive... <laughs> Uh, who was wearing this, like, pumpkin suit. It was very charming. But they basically called all of the actors over and said, yeah, you can take pictures with uh, anybody that you want to, you know, take pictures and, and post on social media, what have you. And I guess I was wearing kind of what I normally wear, which could be construed as witchy. <laughs> um, I, I wear a lot of black. I wear almost, ex well, e exclusively dresses, not almost even. I don't think I own any real, real pants. But we actually live on the Kansas side of the Kansas City metro, and there was this sort of Wizard of Oz theme. So they had, you know, a Wicked Witch, they had all these flying monkeys. Um, I thought it would be pretty cool if, if I could take a pose with all of the flying monkeys as if they were mine. <laughs> 
So I said, yeah, give me the monkeys, call them over, let's, let's take a picture. And it was a pretty cool picture. If I still have it and can find it, I'll try to post it on Twitter later. This is relevant. So I, <laughs> I promise we'll, we'll get to the point. So I went to the Halloween haunt early and I was certainly not going back to the beast or the edge of hell or anything run by this same company again. And it was, it was getting kind of close to Halloween time. And I really just wanted a, a, an immersive feel it in my bones fright. So what did I do? but went to karaoke. Because fun fact about Courtney, singing in front of people is my biggest, potentially only fear. <laughs> I love singing. I absolutely adore it, but I am horrified at the very idea of anyone hearing me sing. Royce included. Which is why I've learned to work with a good set of noise-canceling headphones. Especially when we're both just home all day, every day. We both work from home and it's like, Royce, I must sing! Put on your headphones! You can't hear me! You can't! So I decided to head on down to my local Hamburger Mary's. But before I went out, I had already been to karaoke. I've, I've done this a few times when I, just, when I just need that rush, when I just need to feel alive. <laughs> So I knew that there were a couple of songs that I sing that can really get the crowd excited, really get people going and get a lot of energy and kind of takes off the pressure of me singing in front of people a little bit. So I had my couple of comfortable go-to songs, reasonably comfortable. But there was one song that I really, really wanted to sing. I love singing it alone. And that is Dog Days by Florence and the Machine. Dog days are over now. And every time I'm singing this on my own, I'm no gauge of my own voice, by the way. I don't know if I'm good, if I'm bad, if this sounds nice. I just no idea whatsoever. And that's part of the huge fear. So I'm thinking to myself, if I sing this in front of people, it's either going to be the best song I've ever sung or... I'm absolutely kidding myself, and this is going to be a sloppy, sloppy mess. So before I left out the door that night, I turned to Royce and I said, Royce, there's a song I want to sing, but it's, it's really, really scary. Should I, should I sing the scary song tonight? Sure. So there it was. I was going to sing the scary song. <laughs> So I head on down to Hamburger Mary's, and I go alone. I, I often go out alone. Um, I rather enjoy it. If I have a friend who's willing to join me where I want to go, that's also plenty fun. But I, I like, you know, being in public places alone, going out to eat alone. So going to karaoke alone was not um, a new or weird thing for me. And that particular night set a lot of weird things in motion. Because I got up there... And I sang Dog Days by Florence and the Machine. And when I need to sing in front of people, I am, like, shaking. I am drowning myself in the amount of water that I am just compulsively drinking. <laughs> because I'm just so... Nothing gets me this viscerally nervous as singing in front of people. So I, I am a panicked wreck. And I get done singing. And I just immediately retreat to the corner, hoping no one will talk to me. But someone comes up and says, Hey, I know you. 
you're Courtney Lane. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, someone who knows me just heard me sing. I wasn't completely anonymous. And she says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was an actor at the Halloween haunt. I was one of the flying monkeys who posed with you. And I went, oh, that's how you know me. Yeah, and, and she, she complimented me on the song, so that was very, very kind. But I was also like, yeah, I, I don't buy it. I'm probably the worst singer in the world, and you're just being polite. By the way, is now a good time to shout out the, like, half a dozen people or so who have contacted us since we started this podcast to tell me how much you love my voice? I don't think you understand exactly how much that means to me. Happy tears every single time. More of that, please, but only if you mean it. Don't lie to me. At any rate, I get over the initial panic of, of speaking to this person who knew exactly who I was. And then the KJ walks over to me, and he says, that is my favorite song. You killed it. You need to audition for Rock the Mic. And I said, what is Rock the Mic? I had, I had no idea. And he said, it is a live weekly singing competition. It's right here at Mary's. It's similar to The Voice. We have judges. We have coaches. Every single week is a new theme. It's a real live reality show. People get, you know, voted off every week. And the winner gets $1,000 studio recording time and a spot to perform at Kansas City Pride. I said, oh, well, I'll, I'll have to think about it. <laughs> Feeling in that moment probably better about myself and my singing capabilities than I have ever felt. Because mind you, I wouldn't have sang this song if Royce didn't really half-assedly tell me sure as I was headed out the door. <laughs> Supportive spouses, 10 out of 10. And so I asked for more details and... He said, you know, we're, we're auditioning for the second season soon, but the first season is still in progress. If you want to come, he gave me the details for, you know, night, time, etc. And he said, make sure to call for your reservations. I said, okay, yeah, I can do that. And then he looked down at my cane and, you know, asked me about it. It's, that's one of those things where I sometimes get it, I sometimes don't mind fielding questions, but man, I just get so many of them. I get so many questions about my cane. <laughs> but my ego had just been well and truly fed with uh, the, the overwhelming compliments on my singing performance. So I paid it no mind at all. This um, this particular KJ was like, yeah, you know, I, I have a disabled sister, so I get it. I understand. <laughs> Which, Rice, you are married to me, who is a disabled person, but would you say you really understand the disabled experience? No. I mean, I understand a lot more now due to proximity but there is still only so much you can understand without experiencing it yourself. And this, mind you, would have remained a very innocuous exchange if it didn't begin a pattern of behavior. So I, I thought, yeah, you know, before I audition for this, because 
Entering a live weekly singing competition is about the scariest thing I could possibly think of. I came here to be terrified tonight. I guess I got my wish. <laughs> so, I decided I was going to go and and see the current season. And so I called ahead as I was instructed. And the thing about this particular bar, this restaurant performance venue, is that. They have a lot of high top tables and high chairs. They have some, you know, regular low to the ground tables. This is their word for the opposite of a high top. <laughs> um, but it it's definitely a mix, and I can almost never sit at a high top chair for any extended period of time. It is just far too painful and difficult for me. So when I called, I said I need a reservation for one. And I need a low top table. I need to make sure that I'm sitting in a chair where my feet touch the ground. And over the phone, they said, "I'm I'm sorry, we are not allowed to set a reservation for just one person." And I said, "Well, I'm coming alone. <laughs> What do you want?" I was told I needed a reservation, and they said, "Well, single people can, you know, have a spot at the bar." I said, "I can't sit at the bar." <laughs> Um, and they say, "Oh well, there's always standing room." No, I I can't stand for an entire show. I can't stand. I can't sit at a high top. I need a a chair where my feet touch the ground. And they said, "Well, that that's no problem. We can't set the reservation, but just come, and there'll probably be extra spots we can sit you in." And bear in mind, if you aren't familiar with Hamburger Mary's, this is. A queer space. This is an LGBT bar. It is a chain. It's in more more cities than just ours. And the primary feature of which is that they do regular drag shows. So as a queer person myself, I often feel a lot more comfortable in these spaces than, you know, your non-LGBT specific karaoke bars or any other. Local bars. I feel a lot more comfortable in these LGBT spaces, and so I, I showed up that night, and I was alone, as I often am. Royce had no interest in seeing the show, and I walked in and I told them exactly the same thing: what what I needed for seating room. And they said, "We can't give you a table if you don't have a reservation." So I, of course, argued for a few moments and recapped my phone conversation, and they basically ended up saying, "We can't seat you." And so, for a few minutes, I sat on the bench, like the overflow waiting room area,、uh, just a bench on the side by the door for long enough that the show had begun. I saw the first couple of opening numbers, and I noticed, mind you, they they had tables that were two chairs that were low tops that were not filled that night. And I asked, you know, the person at the door again, "Can I sit in one of those?" And they said, "No, not without a reservation." I said, "Does anyone have a reservation for these?" And they said, "No." And I explained the situation again. I showed them my cane. I was obviously walking with a mobility aid, but they just absolutely refused to seat me. And what really, really got me that night was that the person manning the door <laughs> and taking tickets and managing reservations. Had a high top chair for their sort of check in desk, and after a few numbers had gone by, they walked over and grabbed a short chair and brought it over 
and and sat down and on, on their own. And while I was right there next to them in the bench, not able to order food, not able to order a drink, um, and that was when I left sobbing, <laughs> absolutely sobbing. I sat in the parking lot and I cried for a good long while because LGBTQ plus spaces are supposed to be inclusive spaces. And to have a space say, we don't care if you are gay, if you're bi, if you're trans, to have a place readily employ drag queens and host a variety of queer events and fundraise for queer causes, to then say, we're not going to accommodate you in your disability. <laughs> really stung. And so I, I sent a message to Hamburger Mary's that night after I'd come home far earlier than Rice was expecting <laughs> and, and told this story. I, I sent a message to Hamburger Mary's and I explained what happened and my disappointment in the situation as a whole. And then a couple days later, I went back to karaoke at exactly the same place. And when the KJ saw me, his eyes lit up. He, he came and hugged me and greeted me as a friend. And I, I told him that I tried to come to Rock the Mic to see what the deal was and that I was uh, turned away and not given a seat. And he said, oh, that was you. Tur turns out uh, this person was not only the KJ, but um, a major events coordinator at the restaurant. So um, he was also in charge of Rock the Mic and, and a variety of other things. And he gave me the whole, you know, it's not going to happen again. Again, my my sister is disabled. I I understand. I got it. So, and in that moment, I I really really did feel like this was someone who had my back. And so I auditioned for Rock the Mic, and they allowed me in. I think we started with about eighteen people. I think they originally wanted to have 20, but a couple people dropped out right off the bat. So the number 18 is in my head. So 18 people, live singing competition every week. And so, of course, the very first week when we could sing whatever we wanted to, I was going to sing Dog Days because that was the song that got me the invitation uh, to come here in the first place. And it perhaps should be noted that while... I was able to traverse this space on these nights. Um, the, the space for performers was absolutely not accessible. The dressing room was down uh, more than one flight of stairs. There were steps going up to the stage itself. I was able to manage, but not easily. And there are so many other people who just could not have been able to access those spaces as a disabled performer. So that was definitely something that was sort of bothering me in the back of my head because I just kept thinking, how many amazing disabled queer performers are there in this city who, who can't perform in this space? But that first night I wore a very vampy, gothic kind of 
you know, Morticia, Elvira kind of number, a, a long black uh, tight-fitting gown um, with cleavage for days and some long cape sleeves and uh, a purple top hat, which is a signature of mine. And while the performance was okay, I, d I don't think it was uh, my best work because I was horrified, mind you. <laughs> um, I was a little disappointed in the fact that the judges' reactions to me were less about, you know, your voice is good, your performance is nice, and it was more about those titties. It was very much like your boobs are magnificent tonight. And look, I understand we're at a drag bar. I understand it is all about the body, yaddy, yaddy, and I have it in abundance. <laughs> But there is just something about that. Maybe we need to do a future boobs episode because I have complicated feelings on the matter. That is just always overtly over-sexualized and someone like me who has always been very large-chested, I just, I can't help it. And I don't particularly like it when people you know, sexualize my breasts just because they are big and I can't help it. That's just how they be. And so the first couple of weeks of the competition go pretty well. A couple of people get eliminated. I am flabbergasted to have not been the very first person eliminated because I had very low self-esteem where my voice is concerned. And I very distinctly remember a friend asking me, uh, a friend who had come to see most of my performances throughout this competition, they said to me, what is the reward you're hoping to win? You know, they're, they're offering studio recording time for an album. They're also offering cash, you know, are you more excited about the cash or do you want the studio recording time? And I distinctly remember saying to them that while the cash and the studio recording time are fantastic, and I will, of course, enjoy them, what I really wanted was the spot to perform at Pride. Because Royce and I had been to Kansas City Pride before, and it was fine. There were a couple of pieces of asexual merchandise available, but I did find the general ace presence to be very severely lacking. So in my mind, I just thought, how cool would it be if I, as an asexual woman, can win this local queer singing competition and earn a spot to perform at our pride um, and bring that asexual awareness to the event? That was really the most worthwhile goal to me. And I thought I knew exactly what I was going to perform to, uh, assuming the competition went well. Because, every, as I said, every week was a different category. So we had, you know, in, in off-Broadway week, we had a pop star diva week. We had to sing in a different genre every single time. And one of the categories we were forewarned of was, you need to take a song and you need to rewrite at least one verse of it to, uh, you know, put your own stamp on it, kind of reminiscent of the put your stamp on it uh, from RuPaul's Drag Race, kind of a kind of a thing. And right from the get-go, before the competition even started, I said, I want to rewrite Bang Bang by Jessie J 
Ariana Grande and Nicki Minaj. And I want to change that song to Bake Bake. And it is going to be a completely asexual song. And it is going to be about baking cake and being ace and living your best ace life. And I was utterly thrilled at the concept of singing an entire song about being ace at this uh, drag bar. So, and I thought if this goes well and people like it and I can actually pull off singing this song, I am absolutely going to try to sing this at Kansas City Pride on the main stage. (laughs) But alas, it never was to be. And there are many reasons for that. The first of which being the entire competition was jacked up. The host of the show was constantly changing rules, interfering, cheating on behalf of certain contestants. So it was it was a very contentious time. It did not by any stretch of the imagination feel like a fair competition. But there also began to be these weird moments. You see, I used to be a dancer. I was a dance teacher for 15 years thereabout. I grew up dancing. And there was a time in my life where I wanted to be a professional dancer. That was my career path of choice. But my rapidly deteriorating body had other plans. So on the best possible pain day and just general physical health day, I still have the coordination of a dancer and I I can bust out a few really good moves if I need to. I just have to be prepared to not do absolutely anything for the next day, if not the next week. And there was, you know, a a speakeasy night where we had to do like a 20s themed cover of a modern song. And I remember singing Mad World in the theme of postmodern jukebox. And I thought, well, I there there was a little musical break and I said, I have to do a tap number. I'm gonna I'm gonna dig out my tap shoes and I'm gonna do a very short little tap number. And I did, and it was well-received. I scored pretty well that night. But at that point, the judges and the host, um, virtually everyone were saying, well, now that we know you're a dancer, you have to dance for us more. (laughs) I said, there's only so much I can do. You know, that that was pretty light. It was pretty short. I can't dance in the way that I used to be able to. But... The people in the competition who were dancing were outperforming the people who were not. And I started getting very direct criticisms about that from the same host of the show and the same KJ who invited me to be a part of this in the first place, um, among other people, judges, audience members who are saying, you need to show us those dance moves more and you need to... The host especially kept saying, you need to be sexier. That's what your performance needs. You need to be sexier. And that was very, very difficult to reconcile as an asexual person who can't 
at all relate to being sexy. I understand some people are, you know, asexual lingerie models. Some people are asexual burlesque performers and they can still inhabit that sexuality, even if they don't feel sexually attracted to other people. But it's, it's an uncomfortable space for me to be in and I don't relate to it at all. I can act if I absolutely have to, but in my mind, if I was on stage at the singing competition, I was representing myself and I was being myself and I was ultimately trying to bring more asexual representation into the Kansas City queer community. So it didn't quite feel right that I kept being told you need to be sexier. There was a fabulous, fabulous uh, burlesque performer who was another contestant in this uh, competition. Um, her name is Annie May Allure. She's phenomenal. She uh, hosts burlesque shows, um, real professional stand-up person. And the host kept saying, you just need to be sexy like her. You just need to be sexy like her. You need to be sexier. Add more anime allure to your Courtney performance. And that really started grinding on me at a certain point because I wanted to succeed in this competition. And I made the mistake of telling myself that I just had to play the game. I had to give them what they wanted. I also made the mistake of listening to Royce. The first time Rice had an opinion about what song I should sing for Around the World Week. Hey, we already established that my opinion was what got you into this competition when I was like, yeah, sure, do the do the song that you talk about singing all the time. But also, I I definitely overestimated a Kansas City gay bar's enthusiasm for K-pop. <laughs> Hey, now, there there were a couple of very, very interested K-pop stands. But listen, when Around the World Week came, I definitely joked, like, you can't do Around the World Week without a K-pop number. Like, K-pop is one of the biggest industries in the entire world right now. But Royce here, not, not being a, a huge K-pop fan by any stretch of the imagination, but knowing of the most prominent groups um was definitely like yeah you should sing a k-pop song you should sing kill this love by blackpink <laughs> and that was the week courtney learned how to rap in korean i wish i was kidding <laughs> but oh no no i did not stop there i thought well my black lacy victorian gothic floor-length gown Morticia Adams-inspired wardrobe will simply not do for a K-pop number. I went to the mall. I said, I'm going to find something to wear for a K-pop number. I got the skimpiest red glittery shiny dress I could possibly find. It was short, skin tight. It showed my midriff. <laughs> And I got thigh-high boots, baby. <laughs> I got a funky jacket that was a little bit reminiscent of a, of a K-pop music video I'd seen at one point. I got some... I got... I went to Hot Topic for the first time in a decade or so. <laughs> and I got some chains to wrap around one of my boots and my waist. <laughs> 
and taking the two criticisms of you need to dance more, you need to move around more, and you need to be sexier, I thought, all right, game on. I am going to sing and rap in Korean in this skimpy-ass number. (laughs) And I'm going to move around the bar, and I am going to be collecting those tips. I will be plucking dollars. I got up on a table. I stood up on a table in spike thigh-high heels, and I danced around that entire damn bar. It was exhausting, and my... (laughs) (laughs) My singing suffered because of it. (laughs) It was not my finest work. I think the rapping at the beginning was surprisingly decent, actually. But um, as soon as I started getting around, trying to dance, trying to move, yeah, no, it, it wasn't happening. It was way too much for me. But I felt all this pressure to do it. And that was the night that I was in the bottom two and had to sing for my life. And I sang What's Up by the Four Non-Blondes, because that was my one go-to karaoke song (laughs) that I knew everybody loved when I sang. And I have never gotten so many tips for a live performance in my life as when I sang that Sing For Your Life number. I was absolutely living for that moment. It was very, very good. And I did, at the end of it all, live (laughs) to sing for another few weeks. But the one thing I haven't mentioned is how stark of a difference it was between that number, which was my lowest performing, my lowest performing score of the entire competition, versus one of my higher, if not the highest scores, was Pop Star Diva Week, where that week I told myself, I said, I'm I'm not the Pop Star Diva kind, so I'm going to do a remix. And I took Toxic by Britney the most famous pop star diva, and I did a very dark, witchy, slow, melodic cover of it. And for that performance, I sat in a stool the entire time, which was the most comfortable I had been performing on that stage because I was seated, I wasn't standing, and I wasn't moving. And we lit fire candelabras all over the place. It was beautiful. It was atmospheric. It was fantastic. And that was one of my highest performing days. And yet still, even after that, they were like, you need to be sexier. You need to be sexier and you need to move more. And I took that advice and it flopped. But the worst part of it all was that I showed up to our practice night in that red skimpy dress and those thigh high boots And being a dancer in my former life, I know the joys of just black spandex shorts. Pop those under your dresses. (laughs) I am wearing black spandex under almost every dress ever because they are very comfortable. They They are very good. You can tuck your dress into your shorts if you need to and go hiking. They're wonderful. I was wearing spandex shorts under that dress, and during that practice night, when the bar is closed and we just have the stage to play around with, I tried dancing. I tried at one point sitting on the steps of the stage and and singing out to sort of the front row, and the same person who kept telling me that I need to be sexier and comparing me to the professional burlesque performer of the competition saying I needed to be more like her, told me that my dress was too short and that I had to be careful 
because I had to retain a little bit of modesty because, quote, you're still a lady. And he, not being a drag queen himself, told me to maybe ask the other drag queens for tips on how to stay modest. Ah, it sounds ridiculous in hindsight. And I still went along with this every damn week. And so, long story short, this competition actually got interrupted by the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, In March of 2020, we had to take a hiatus. So I was not able to return for my final performance to, to see how things would have actually ended. But the last very, very weird little bit of ableism that I got for the last week that I did perform was during Kelly Clarkson week, which was perhaps my least favorite week. Nothing against Kelly Clarkson herself, but we are not all Kelly Clarksons. I'm I'm more of a Florence gal. I'm more of a four non-blondes gal. Um, I was very nervous about singing a Kelly Clarkson song, but... I was thinking, you know, because of you might be something I can sing. I was thinking of a couple other songs that, you know, I was more familiar with than others. But there was a complication with this week. Because, you see, I was actually out of town the week right before. I think it was 80s week, but that's beside the point. I I was out of town, and I had warned them before the competition even started that if I lasted two months... (laughs) There was going to be a day that I was not going to be there. And that was because I was taking my mother on the Golden Girls cruise. I grew up watching Golden Girls with my mom, and I was not going to pass up an opportunity. You know, when I was a kid, we never went on just a 100% pure vacation for fun and relaxation. So... You know, in my adult life, I thought it is time for my mother and me to go on a vacation. And what better than the Golden Girls cruise? I'd never been on a cruise before in my entire life. So I was not about to skip that opportunity for this singing competition that I may or may not have won anyway. But right from the get-go when I told them, still thinking that I was going to be, you know, eliminated within the first week or two, I did not have the foresight to think that I would actually last this long. They said, well, don't worry. You can come back the week after, and as long as you aren't in the bottom three, we won't automatically eliminate you. And then I find out that the week I'm coming back is Kelly Clarkson week, and I don't feel super confident about that. Nobody feels super confident about that. But this same event organizer who had been stringing me along this entire time told me to sing Broken and Beautiful, And he said, you should sing Broken and Beautiful, and you should do it with your cane. Go on stage and stand with your cane. Walk around the audience with your cane, singing Broken and Beautiful. It's going to symbolize your disability. It's going to be great. I felt weird about it. I wasn't familiar with the song. I had to learn the song. I'd never heard it in my life until less than a week before I had to sing it live. But I said, okay, you know, play the game, do what they want, get to the end, get that spot to perform at Pride. And my coach, very, very wonderful, supportive coach, 
also agreed that I would probably sound very good singing the song. So I thought, okay, I have two opinions here. But the host of the show said, don't you worry. I'm going to be the guest judge this week, in addition to being the host. And I can tell you with certainty, if you sing Broken and Beautiful on stage with your cane and I'm judging, you will not be in the bottom three this week. And I'll be damned if I didn't later find out that that jerk gave me not only the lowest score of the night, but the lowest score that I had gotten the entire competition, even lower than the scores I had gotten during the Around the World week where I did a disastrous K-pop performance and legitimately wound up in the bottom three. I was many, many points lower on his score sheet than I was the next lowest judge. And I only only got into the bottom three by two points. And that was all on him. So he, having gained my trust, having told me that I wasn't sexy enough, having told me that I needed to be more modest at the same time, having told me that I need to sing about how broken I am with my mobility aid and how there isn't going to be a dry eye in the house, people are going to love it was the same one who intentionally tanked my score. I don't know why he did it. <laughs> I I don't know if he had some sort of personal vendetta against me. I do not know if he just had an idea in his head for how this pseudo-reality show was going to go. But that very last week after I left Hamburger Mary's, I, I wasn't quite ready to go home yet. So I decided to head over to... Another local gay bar that was open for a couple extra hours, and it was an off night, so it wasn't very uh, it wasn't very dense. And I had been watching the news very carefully about the pandemic that did not seem to be in Kansas City yet, but I was reading about other places of the country where it was. And being immunocompromised as all get out, I was watching that like a hawk and I was ready for our shutdown to come, even though many other in the area were not. I went to the second bar and I, I found myself in an argument with a, a stranger I had never met before because we got talking about this seemingly budding pandemic where no one in our area knew anything about it yet. And I, I explained my take, how, yeah, there should be a shutdown, there should be a quarantine, because there are just too many people who are immunocompromised, and it needs to be stopped in its tracks. And I had a mask in my purse, because I had already worn a mask on airlines when I travel, when I'm feeling unwell, if I have a random allergy that pops up out of nowhere. I just had already had a mask in my bag with me before anyone had a mask mandate or it was normal at all in this area. And I, I took it out of my bag to demonstrate, look, I already have a mask. This This man was arguing with me about how people shouldn't be forced to wear masks, even though you know, I think New York had been at the time, or maybe LA, a, a more populated area on a coast. He said that that shouldn't happen here in Kansas City. We don't need to wear masks. Uh, we don't need to quarantine. They shouldn't shut down businesses. And when I said, look, I have a mask and I, I wear this frequently already. 
and everybody else doing so might be the difference between me staying alive during something like this. He just looked me in the eye and said, why are you even here right now? If you're so sick, you should just stay home all the time and you should never go out. And I asked him, do you believe that in your heart of hearts? He said, yeah, I do. You should not stand in the way of anyone else living their life. This sounds like a you problem. You just need to stay home. And that was the last public queer space I have been in to date. So that was fun. And I am not going to talk about the nightmarish hellscape that is the eugenics-based philosophy (laughs) that has been the last year and a half, two two years? How long has it been? I've lost track. Literally, March 13th was the last day I left my house of 2020, and I don't think I properly left my house again until August 18th of 2021, and that was purely because my license was expiring, and if I didn't go to the DMV, I'd have to retake my driver's license. So we have been very, very quarantined. Uh, this whole time because of my health. So we're not even going to talk about the warped politics of, of the pandemic and how every waking moment of my online existence has been inundated with people saying, yeah, you know, people who are already disabled, already immunocompromised, um, they're expendable. Old people are expendable. It's, it's only people who are already sick who die of COVID. Um, that really wears on the psyche after a while. And if you have any disabled immunocompromised friends and you haven't checked on them yet, please do, because we are still feeling this. And I have so much more that I want to say, but I think that is a good break for today's episode, because in the next episode, I want to actually talk about the really intrinsically linked politics of asexuality and disability and the complications of existing in this intersection. And as a part of it, I want to discuss the broader systemic issues, why we have gotten to this point, why there's a phobia in the disability community, and why there is ableism in the ace community, because there absolutely are And if you haven't seen it yet, I really implore you to carry on to our part two, which will be released next week. But I will also share a couple of personal anecdotes about my own experience in these two communities existing as a disabled asexual person, because it is incredibly important. So that episode is going to be released on our very first Disabled Ace Day. Wednesday, October 27th, 2021, right in the middle of Ace Week. I'm very excited for it. I really hope all of you are as well. And please make sure to tune in because it's going to be a really great conversation. And until then, we'll talk to you guys next time.